today what a respect for the sanctity of life should look like in us. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. It is a scripture today, Psalm 139. I've been going through the book of Psalms. I have not suddenly covered another 69 Psalms to get to this one. Uh, I have, uh, in my own personal studies, gotten through Psalm 70. But uh, this is a week, traditionally, when we have uh, dedicated episodes and radio shows before that, and also Uh, when I've been preaching in churches, we have dedicated it to the topic of sanctity of life. Uh, Historically, uh, meaning over the past 50 years, uh, people have tried to remember around the time when Roe v. Wade was decided, uh, the importance on the other side of that issue of remembering the value of every human life, including those little children. And so, Uh, For years, we have focused on the sanctity of life, and Psalm 139 is one of those passages that ends up being dredged out of Scripture and used to make the point about the sanctity of human life. This is the the chapter, Psalm 139, that has the statements, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance, and so on. So all of those statements, which are fantastic reminders of the value of human life, even before it's realized in the forms uh, where we're more accustomed to seeing it, these passages like this that cover that value are worth bringing up to talk about the sanctity of human life and to talk about it in the womb and why it's so important to preserve it and care about it and so on. And so for, you know, I mean, just like everybody else, we've quoted that passage, used that passage, and so on. In all my years, I've never done an entire study, I mean, a study of the entire chapter of the 139th Psalm. I've just never done it. So this year, I was invited to speak again at a church, uh, First Baptist Church in Leonard, Texas, for the Sanctity of Life Sunday, this past Sunday. And uh, as, uh, you know, having been invited to speak there, I thought, well, I'll I'll, uh, look at some passage that I haven't covered with them that talks about the sanctity of life. And I thought of this one, and I thought, well, I've been doing the Psalms anyway, so I'll just skip ahead 69 Psalms and do Psalm 139, but I'll do the whole Psalm and figure out what what the message of this Psalm actually is and communicate that because there's no way it's unrelated to the sanctity of life because you can see the value of life being described so articulately by David in this psalm. So somehow there's got to be a relationship between whatever the overall message is and the sanctity of life. And that's what I want us to find. And it has impacted me. Studying this psalm this way uh, affected me, made me think differently. 
about how I talk about the sanctity of life. And so I want to share that with you today. So the superscript of the psalm, the beginning to the choir master, a psalm of David, introduces us, gets us started into the first uh, part of the psalm, and in every part of this psalm serves as a reminder that really we should say this about David. David is able to say these things. You have searched me and known me. And that means for us, the Messiah is saying, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. And when we know the Messiah, then it makes sense that we would say the same thing. Now, I do believe this applies to humanity in general for reasons that are fairly obvious to me, but somebody might disagree with, that's fine. So a lot of my language today is going to be couched in the, in the idea of the chosen one, the Messiah, because being in the Messiah means these things are true about us anyway. And the fact that everyone is invited to be in the Messiah makes it applicable to everybody indirectly. But more directly, I do want this to be about us, uh, those of us who view ourselves, understand ourselves, find our identity in the chosen one, because being in him makes us chosen. Uh, that is what makes us chosen. So the way this psalm is organized, every, every section will be about something relating the Father and the Son, or God and the Messiah in that sense. And there are four different sections in the psalm. So it's 24 verses long. This one's actually very direct, even in Hebrew. Uh, because the superscript is rolled into the first verse along with the first verse in the way we see it in English. So you know, if you know Hebrew scripture, you know sometimes that's different in the Psalms. But in this case, the numbers line up perfectly, and it's 24 verses, and it's divided into four sections, and they're all six verses long. And it's really obvious. I mean, the divisions are stark, so there's no, there's no challenge observing the structure of this Psalm. Uh, the the, the invitation, it's not even a challenge, the invitation in the psalm is to understand why one section leads inevitably to the next. And we're even guided by the hand down that path because in each of the six-verse sections, they're divided into the first four verses that are very directly related to each other, and then the following two, so four and two to make the six verses, then the last two verses of each section that lead directly into the next section. They're not the same as the next section, but they do show why you would be thinking toward the next part of the psalm. So, I mean, this psalm just begs you to walk down the path clearly and see where it goes. And so that's what we're going to try to do today, starting in the first section, verses one through six, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, Yahweh, you know it altogether. You Hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now, so this first section is obvious and the message of it is obvious. I mean, it's in the first verse. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. God knows his chosen one. 
And the way I would describe that, and in philosophy, we use this language all the time. I've used it in an episode previously to talk about knowledge, uh, you know, the, the idea of epistemology and philosophy, how we come to know things. And I referred to it as being skin in. And what skin in means in philosophy is that all of our experiences, the colors that we see and the data that we interpret, we call it sense data, that all of that's actually skin in. And uh, in an illustration that I used in a different episode, and, you know, I pointed out that when you say you're feeling a table, you're not feeling a table. I'm tapping the table with my finger while I'm saying it this time too. You're not feeling the table. You're feeling the end of your finger because you don't have nerves in the table. You have nerves in the end of your finger. So by the time a bit of sense data actually gets to you, it's already inside of your skin. So all of your experiences are inside of you, and I don't have access to what's inside of you. Only you do. So it's this, it's this way that we know ourselves because we know how we're experiencing the world because it's all happening skin in. We have perfect access to it, meaning our experience of it is the reality of it. Okay, fine. So I'm seeing things this way. I'm hearing this sound. You can say there's no sound out there. That doesn't change the fact that I'm hearing it. So the point is that I have all of these experiences that I know so well about myself that are skin in, and nobody else has access to that. No one else knows exactly what I'm thinking. I can sit and look at you and listen to the words you're saying, and I can be nodding my head and saying, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. And I can be thinking about a book that I'm reading, or about some story that I'm creating, or about the meal I'm going to eat as soon, uh-huh, uh-huh, as this conversation is over. You know that nobody can see that. I mean, sometimes you can sneak a look through somebody's eyes and get an idea, but still, you don't see what's actually going on inside of their head. That's why uh, being able to tell whether someone's lying or not is such, such a performance. You know, how, do you, how on earth would you know? You don't know what's going on in their consciousness, their experience. And the opposite of that is true about God. The things that are unique to me, that I have privileged access to, God knows even better than I do. He knows the things in the very inside of me. He has searched me and known me. And he knows what I'm about to do and what I have already done. When I sit down, when I rise up, he can tell my thoughts even when he's not right here. So, and this is a, you know, a way of anthropomorphizing. We're about to describe in this psalm how God is right here all the time. He's always present. That's not the point. In anthropomorphizing, what we're saying is it's as if you're sitting in a different stadium and you can tell this batter what pitch I'm about to throw. I don't know how you could know all of that. That's what the psalmist is saying. So he says, you search out, and then he talks about his path. I'll come back to that part in the second long section about why he talks about the path in knowing my inner self, because there is an inherent relationship between the soul and the path that we're on, the purpose that we have in Scripture and, and in the way God talks about our soul. So anyway, you search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all of the directions I'm going to go, with all my ways. And before I even have a word on my tongue, 
So oh, you know, I've got that word. It's on the tip of my tongue. I can't even think of it. Before I can even get it on the tip of my tongue, God already knows the whole word. He knows exactly what I'm going to say. He knows me better than I know myself. Uh, this is, a, and this leads naturally into the last two verses of this section, verses five and six, which I said make a separate point. They sort of lead into the next big section that we're going to get, but it leads nicely into it. So in verse five, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand on me. And this is in the way of protection or comfort or encouragement or whatever it is. It's the hand of blessing, that idea. You hem me in behind and before, well, because he knows where I'm going. He knows what I'm going to be doing. He knows the path. And so you lay your hand on me, and I never have to worry about it not being there. So God's awareness, God's knowledge of me implies his presence with me, that I can count on his presence. And so what I say in verse 6, what what David says in verse 6, and what I say is true about us as his chosen, is such knowledge When David says this, we have a tendency to read it as just an emotional outburst or an interjection, right? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. As if to say, and this is, this is not, this wouldn't be inherently wrong. It could mean this, as if to say it's just emotionally beyond my grasp. This is so great to know that God knows me this well that I just, I can't even, oh, it's just, oh. And then we're done. You know, we can't say anything. And that's sort of what verse 6 sounds like. But I don't think that's his point. I think his point is the same as the bit about the tongue. Before I can get a word out of my tongue, you already know the whole word, and you know what I'm going to say about it. In verse 6, he's saying, the kind of knowledge you have of me, such knowledge, is too wonderful for me to obtain. That knowledge is higher than I can grasp. I cannot attain to that knowledge, meaning I don't know myself as well as you do. So this statement tells you how well God does know his chosen one. So the opening statements in this passage are that God knows his chosen one skin in. God knows his chosen one in depth. He knows every detail about them. What flows from that is in the you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me, and it's expanded starting in verse 7, where what we're going to see is not about God's knowledge of us, because we've already established that, but God's presence with his chosen one and with us. So God is present with his chosen one everywhere. Here's how he says it starting in verse 7. This is the second section, so verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? And we, you know, we immediately think in the next phrase, especially of Jonah trying to flee from Yahweh. Uh, So Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. So I'll go down to Tarshish and I will flee from the presence of the Lord, right? So here's how David is saying it before Jonah. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? But in this case, he doesn't want to be separated from God's presence He's asking it rhetorically, like, where would I ever go that you wouldn't already be there? And since he already said in verse 5, you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me, we know this has to do with him saying something about the relationship between God's knowledge and God's presence. That's the idea in verses 5 and 6. His knowledge is what made it 
clear and obvious that he would be present. It's not like we're going to decide to go left and God would go, oh, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Of course he knows what direction we're going to go. So God is present with his chosen one everywhere. So David says, where would I go where I wouldn't be in the presence of your spirit? Where would I flee from your presence? And he gives him arism. If I ascend all the way up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed all the way down in the place of the dead, Sheol, you're there. If, and now he goes horizontal, east to west, if I take the wings of the morning all the way from the east and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, as far west as I could possibly go, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There's nowhere I'm going to go where you're not going to be before and behind me and with your hand on me, as he had said uh, in verse 5. So now I've got verses 7 through 10 down as simply God is present with his chosen one everywhere. So he's omnipresent. So he's, he's omniscient. He knows everything about us. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere with us. But it's not just universal. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient about me. And God is omnipresent with me. This is the, and again, we're saying this in the mouth of the Messiah, of the chosen one, of David, in this case. Now, verses 11 and 12, in this second section, verses 7 through 12, verses 11 and 12 follow. So, everywhere I go, you're going to be there, but now he's going to do it with darkness. So, he's giving another contrast. We could just take this as another contrast, but it leads so perfectly into what he's about to say next. It, it seems obvious that it's distinctive. And even the phrasing separates it from the other statements. So in verse 11, if I say, and now he creates a statement, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me will be night. Which is, not, I don't think he's following up on where will I go from your presence? You know, where will I flee from your spirit? Where will I flee from your presence? I think this is him saying, even if I am going into a place that's so dark, that no one could see me or know me. Even that darkness in verse 12 now, he says, is not dark to you. Like, when I'm going into a dark place, that's a threatening place. As David writes about it in the Psalms, those are the places where he could be overtaken by an enemy. Those are the places where he's not safe. And he's saying even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. There is no place where God's light is not guiding this governing. And so, you know, if I were to put it in the words of a different psalm, Psalm 119, uh, the verse everybody knows from Psalm 119, your word, thanks to Amy Grant, your word, maybe not, maybe we all knew it before that, but your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This darkness that we're talking about is threatening because you don't know what's around you and you don't know where to go. You don't know what step to take. You don't know how to be safe. And so instead, the Lord provides this light. So even the darkness is light to you and your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. I'm not saying that because they're the same metaphor. I'm not saying, I'm not stressing that at all. I'm making the point that the darkness that would cover me and the night that would be, you know, and the light about me would be night so that even the things that I'm, I'm hoping for, I can't see those because they're night. Even if I found myself in that position, it's not dark to you. The darkness is not dark to the Lord. The night is bright as the day. Darkness is as light with you. 
so that in my relationship with God, in his presence with me, there's also not just light, it's not neutral light, it's safety. It's also direction, which I'll talk about in a minute, but it's safety, so that God's presence implies safety. So what we've said so far in these you know, 12 verses that we've covered is first that God knows his chosen one and that his knowledge implies presence. Now we've said, okay, God is present with his chosen one, but his presence implies safety. That's the point, that the darkness is no longer dark for us, that the threatening places are no longer threatening because they're not dark to God. Even the darkness is as light to him. So God knows his chosen one and God is present with his chosen one. Now what? Now what he does is pick up the section of the psalm we're most familiar with, that we love the most. So starting in verse 13, for you formed, this is 13 through 18, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now, I know we're thinking about this biologically. I mean, and it's true. He's using this metaphor. Obviously, he's appealing to the mother's womb. So he's appealing to the biological metaphor, biological image to make this point. But this is not about the womb. This is about the soul. This is about what God's creating that makes us eternal, that makes us the beings that we are, not just the biological beings that we are. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And again, literally that's true, obviously. But he's using that to say you were the one that was creating the thing inside of me that makes me me. The thing you search out to know what I'm going to say before I say it. He's describing his soul being formed. I praise you for, he says in the next verse, verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are all of your works. He's he's extending it out to creation. Your works are wonderful. My soul knows it very well. And so now he's able to create a direct connection between whatever God makes and his own soul. My soul knows very well how wonderful the things are that you make, and you formed my inward parts, my soul that can appreciate how wonderful the things are that you make. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Now, again, you could get obsessed here and, oh, I just know the depths of the earth. I mean, now it's formed in a woman's womb, and what is this language for how the insides of a person are the same? You know, it's a metaphor, again, the, the, and we've talked about this image in other episodes as well, but there is a common in, image in literature. It's womb and tomb imagery. I've read it to you in, a, in a, an episode we did on poetry. I've described passages that use that kind of imagery. And I know it sounds creepy, womb and tomb imagery. I mean, it sounds creepy, but it's not. We emerge from this cave, and we're born into the world and we're buried in a cave. We're buried in the ground. And so David is appealing to that imagery, for all I know, creating the imagery, as he says, you know, I was being made in secret and intricately woven in the depths of the earth, as he talks about God forming not just his body inside of his mother's womb, but his soul inside of creation. And so this, you, and again, you can hear the magnitude of the imagery that comes out of this and maybe into this 
from all of literature in the world, how the woman is the creator and so on like that. But that's just imagery to make the point that the creator is weaving together his being, not just his body, but his soul inside of his mother, in the creation itself, inside the womb of the earth, and producing this human being, this person, this chosen one, David, the particular Messiah. So he says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Others couldn't see it, but you could. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance, my, my golem, literally. And if you know that term, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, in, in uh, some, so I don't, it's not like I know Jewish mythology or fables or any of that kind of stuff, but you know, I've read enough stories to know a golem is this sort of weird, unformed dirt creature, you know, that's uh, scary in some children's stories and is used to describe the un this unformed substance. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that can become anything. It's really threatening and dangerous. And I'm, I'm not saying that's what it is in this scripture. I'm saying that's the word. It's interesting that that word pops up here and that what David says about it is this. I had an unformed substance. Your eyes saw that substance, which, of course, God had put together and caused to emerge from the dust of the earth, so to speak. But in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. So what he does in that verse, and he's doing it in this whole section, is go from the very, from before the beginning of my time, you were knitting me together in my mother's womb, and in this case, you saw my unformed substance when none of them even existed yet, every single one of my days. So he's saying, before I had a single day in existence, you already knew every day to the end of my existence and what those days were to be about. So here's how the verse goes. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, already written, every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So, and again, you can, you can read it as a determinist if you want to. I'm not a determinist. I don't read it that way. That's not the point. In fact, I think the end of the chapter makes it obvious that that's not the point. But it doesn't matter whether it's the point or not. What he is saying is this. Before I had a single day of existence, God knew every day of my existence from beginning to end. So God knows all of this just as well as he knew the inside of my soul in those first six verses that we were talking about. So this, now this is where the, the psalm really takes a turn because we're about to lean into the last six verses. We're not quite there yet because we've got this two-verse interruption that invites us toward that end. So right now, I'm looking at a passage that says, God knows me, because remember, the first section was saying how well God knows me. And then God is present with me, because remember, that's the second section, that God is present with me. So God knows me, and he's present with me, because he created me. You formed my inward parts. Remember how we started the psalm? You know my innermost being. You know my soul. You know my secret part. You know everything. How does he know it? 
not, it's not because he stood back and received messages or studied it or observed what was going on. He created you. Of course he knows what's inside of you. That's the point, that he's the creator. God knows and is present because his knowledge and presence of us is rooted in the fact that he created us. He created us on purpose. He created us as a soul. And I'll explain why I'm adding that on purpose and soul part in these two verses, because that's where they automatically take us. So here's here's where he goes. You were the one who created me, so of course you know me and you're present with me because you know what all my days are. You know the whole path out in front of me. So of course you're already there. Why would I be surprised by that? And then he says in verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of those thoughts. So each one, and this is a great contrast, how precious, meaning how rare in some senses the word is used that way. This is the same word that shows up in the 116th Psalm. Uh, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints, which we've talked about before. And that precious, that use of the word there isn't meant to say, oh, God really values it when his people die. It's meant to say God cares about when his people die. He's not ignoring it. It does, it's not like he just waves it off. Oh, who cares about that one? Every single life before God in his people matters to him. It matters to him. That's what this is saying. The precious here is in you are a rare person to him, and it matters to him what's going on with you. How precious to me are your thoughts. So on the one side, there's the rarity that you bring to the equation. On the other side is how vast the sum of the thoughts that he has toward you are. We are just one, and he values us because we are that unique to him. He cares about us, has incredibly valuable thoughts toward us, and he has so many of them that we translate it with the word vast. How vast is the sum of each one of those jewels of thought that you have about me, about the Messiah in this case, he's saying, and therefore for us who are in him. So if I would count them, they're more than the sand appealing back to the creation again. So here's the whole creation, and I look at it, and I realize that I, you have as many thoughts toward me and more of these incredibly valuable, precious thoughts. You have more thoughts toward me than the sand of the sea. This is, this is what you provide in caring for me. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake after the darkness, remember, after I'm feeling threatened, but it's not darkness to you. Everything's light to you. So I'm still with you. Your presence is still here. This, this idea, verses 17 and 18, take what was neutrally just a statement, well, God created us, so of course he knows us and he's present with us, to saying that God's thoughts about us are not neutral thoughts. They're not just, well, of course I know you. You're a machine that I made. Finish the purpose I created you for. It's not that. God's thoughts toward us are as good as his creation is vast. So now we're looking at the whole of creation and saying, what's the evidence he really cares about me? And the answer is the fact that you exist in this whole creation of his. It's obvious that he cares about you simply by the fact that you exist. You say, well, you know, how do you, how do you get there from it? So in other passages, we see exactly the same point being made. 
in one, in Job, in particular in Job 38, you know, after Job's made his point, his friends have made their points, and they've gone back and forth, and Elihu shows up and makes his point, which seems like a really good point. Some people think it is. Some people think it's not. I think it's a really good point. It's a strong point. Even after Elihu makes his point, Yahweh himself has to show up and straighten everything out, right? So Yahweh shows up in in chapter 38, verse 1 of Job, and I think he's making this point, but he's making it this way. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And of course, this is Job saying, why? Why are you doing this to me? Why aren't you letting me at least plead my cause before you? Just give me a hearing. And God says, oh, you want a hearing? I'll give you a hearing. So he answers him out of a whirlwind. And he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. Get up. Get ready. You want to stand before me? Stand before me. Here's, the, here's what I'll ask you. I will question you. And you make it known to me. Because remember, in in David's gentle way of saying this, David's celebratory way of saying this was, the knowledge you have is way above what I could have. I I can't know what you know. That's what David says. It's too, I can't attain to it. Job is like, hey, Lord, I need to know what you know. Something's going on and I want an answer. And I know we take this, this statement that I'm about to read to you, as the Lord saying, you know, slapping Job down and saying, who are you to question me? It's not that. It's him saying, you can't know what I know. You couldn't know what I know. This part I can just get from Job. I can't know everything God knows because I'm not the creator. He's the creator. And I'm talking even just about myself. I didn't create my soul. He created my soul. So for me to think that I would know myself as well as God knows me would be an absurdity. And so the Lord says that to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And while he's talking about that and brings up all of this creation imagery to make the point for Job, that Job wasn't there when he divided the land from the sea and made the creatures that filled the land and the air and the sea and so on, Even while he's bringing up all of that language, we're hearing David say it simply about himself. You knew my substance when I was still unformed. I didn't know my substance, but you did. You knew all of my days, all the way to the end of time, before I even had a day in this world. So, of course, I don't know what you know, and that's what the Lord is saying to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And what we do with that is we just take Job I'm talking about, we just take it as a statement of God's sovereignty and unquestioned uh, and unquestionable authority and uh, say, well, God can do with you whatever he wants to. If he wants to squash you, it's none of your cotton-picking business. You just go do what you're supposed to do. That's fine, and it's true about God that he can do whatever he wants to do. I mean, he's sovereign. Who's going to argue with him? Who's going to question him? as Job is trying to do here. So he deserves that rebuke if that's what it is. But it's more than that. It's less than that in the harsh sense and way more than that in the positive sense because the Lord doesn't end the book of Job by smashing him with his thumb. Well, Job, thanks for letting me use you for my purpose. Now, you know, you're gone. That's not what he does. He ends the book blessing Job. Job prays for his friends, and they're 
recovered and healed, and then God just fills Job with every good thing so that even history looks back on him and says, man, we should be like Job. Remember, James says that. James knows the book of Job. He appeals to Job and says, remember Job. Remember the patience of Job that the Lord, not is sovereign, he is. That's not the point, though. He says that the Lord is good. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is full of tender mercies. That's the idea, that by the time we get to the end, the Lord is saying to Job, I created you. It's not like I've changed my mind. You don't understand how much I care about you. Job wasn't sitting and offering his sacrifices and his prayers and saying to himself, I bet the Lord is thinking, wow, have you seen my servant Job? That would be absurd. Not only did Job not know it, he didn't need to know that, and it couldn't have been helpful if he had known it. And yet the Lord was sitting in heaven and saying to his adversary, have you seen my servant Job? That's how much the Lord cares about his servant. He's watching, and he appeals to say, that, do you see that person? Do you see my servant Job? And we treat it as if it's just him discarding Job's life. How precious are his thoughts toward Job and how vast is the sum of them. That when Job would question whether God knew what he was doing, why are you doing this? Why is this happening to me? It's not just God saying, oh, what a fool. How dare you question me? It's God saying, you have no idea how many thoughts I've had about you. You have no idea how much I want to use you. And he uses him to bring about the redemption of his own friends, remember. He's the one who has to pray for his friends to be redeemed. Anyway, enough of Job. The point is that James, who appeals to Job at the end of his book, at the beginning of his book is doing the same thing, at least appealing to the same idea, whether he's doing it through Job or through this psalm. I don't know. But the point is exactly the same. In James 1, the verses we know, I got to go to James. When do I not go to James, right? So James 1, but listen to this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, he says. After having said to them, don't blame God when you're tempted. When things go wrong, don't blame God. It's not his fault, that's in you. Then he says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And why does he say there's no variation or shadow due to change? Because in the next verse, he says, of God's own will. He brought us forth. He created us by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits, the most valuable thing returned from his creatures so that we become the inheritance. He cares about us. We matter to him. When he created us, it's obvious He chose out of his own will to create us so that we could be the recipients of this blessing. It's not like he's changed. There's no variation or shadow due to his change. So if God created you for his good purpose about you and he doesn't change, then I wonder what he has in mind for us now. It's it's not a complicated concept, but it's one we don't always bring to the front of our minds. The fact that God 
knows us and is present with us because he created us is evidence that the purpose he has for us remains unchanged. God hasn't changed. And his ability to accomplish what he wants with us also never changes. And that's good for us. Look, starting in verse 19, the last section that we come into, because what we've got so far is not only God knows his chosen one, is present with his chosen one, and his knowledge and presence is based on the fact that he created us, but that that creation was for a purpose, and God hasn't changed his mind about his purpose. So where does the psalmist go? The section of the psalm that's always awkward to those of us who don't like to talk about judgment. You say, well, you like to talk about judgment. I do when it's about other people. But the fact that we don't like to talk about it, we're a little uncomfortable with it, makes us exclude it from our understanding of the passage. Here, it's critical to understanding the passage. David takes these next six verses, the first four, and then the last two, the last six verses. The first four are about judging the wicked, right? So how on earth do they fit in here? It's by David saying, well, it's your purpose, and it's a life you created and you care about, so I guess I'll entrust everyone who's opposed to it to you. They're not my enemies anymore. They're yours. They're not for me to judge anymore. They're for you. So, Lord, I'm not going to have my own enemies anymore. I'm just going to give them to you. My enemies, they're your enemies. I don't care if they blaspheme my name. It's not about my name. It's about your name. So listen to him say it, starting in verse 19. Instead of taking up a sword, as my friend Winston Hopman said it, he, take, he takes up a pen and writes a poem, and he says this, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. Now hear what he says. They speak against you, Lord, not me. They speak against you with malicious intent. So not, oh, so I'm going to get a sword and go slaughter them because they can't talk about my God that way and get away with it. Instead, they're fighting against David, and he says, but I don't care if they're fighting against me because you were the one who created me. You're the one who gave me a purpose. So I'll let you take care of the enemies that think they're mine because they're not mine. They're yours. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain, Lord. Those people that I hate, aren't they the ones who hate you, Lord? Don't I, uh, you know, the loathing that I have isn't about those who rise up against you, so I'm not going to do anything about it. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies because they're your enemies. So you take care of it. So in verse two, so what he's doing is saying, I entrust my soul to the one who created and knows and keeps my soul. So these last two verses are him saying to God, so now, Lord, my purpose, my fulfillment of life is just about you and your will. So in verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. I'm going to go just a tiny bit long on the average length of these episodes. If you hang with me for a second, we can still get there. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Well, we started the psalm by saying, He knows my heart. He knows my thoughts. He knows words before I say them. But now David is pleading with God to do that. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. Why is he saying this? Because in verse 24, he says this, and see if there is any grievous way in me. That word grievous is the word that shows up for us notably, significantly in Genesis 3.16, in the curse pronounced on the woman. 
It's the word translated as pain or toil. So painful, toiling, fallen, cursed. You could replace the word grievous with any of those to make the point. He's saying, you created me, and he's using creation language and the fall that follows it to make the point. You created me for a purpose. You know me and can fulfill that purpose. But I may be choosing a way that is toiling against that purpose. I may be choosing a painful way. I may be choosing the curse, the fall instead. So search me out and find that. And instead, lead me in the way that's everlasting, the way you want to direct my path and take it. So, you know, this is, we, we were going to talk about the, you know, the sanctity of human life in order to, to, to make the point today. That's why we chose this psalm, because that passage in the middle about knowing, you forming my inward parts, knitting me together in my mother's womb, and so on. And that's central to this passage. God knows and, and is present with me because he created me. And I have a purpose because God created me. He created my purpose. The, the concept of a soul and a purpose are intertwined in Scripture. They're the same thing. If a man gives his, his soul in exchange for the entire world, he loses. This is, what, this is what Jesus describes about a person who would choose the way of the world instead of choosing to follow the master. It's about your purpose. Your soul is your purpose. So God creates that purpose for you. He creates that soul for you. And the question is whether we live it out or not. And so in the psalm, what he has said is, you're the one who created me, but therefore you know me and you're present with me and you can guard my path and you can handle my enemies because you want to fulfill a purpose for me. And so, Lord, here I give myself. I commit myself. Search me out and cleanse me from the things that are not this. I commit myself to the purpose for which you've called me. This is the reminder. We talked about this when we were doing Sanctity of Life all the time, that no life is an accident, that for a, for a child to be conceived is for the Creator to have given that life. And therefore, it has purpose because the creator's not doing things by accident. Therefore, if that's the case, if no life is an accident, then the whole point of that is, and this is what it means to believe in God, the whole point of that is that your life has a purpose. The belief in a creator is the belief in a purpose for every single part of that creation. I mean, if you think about a place like, and I, I looked this place up recently, I had heard about it a long time ago and kind of forgotten about it, this place called Marble Hill Nuclear Power Plant, Madison, Indiana. You know, this, the, the, this place had $2.8 billion spent on it back in the late 70s through the 1980s to be constructed. So you can imagine how much money that is now. I have no idea. $2.8 billion were spent to build this giant complex. And you can, you know, you can see it from outside the fence all the way into, into the uh, 2010s. You know, this building is still there, the giant concrete domes and the nuclear power plant, but it was never used, never used. The Three Mile Island accident happened. They didn't quite complete the construction. And so it was abandoned in the 1980s and it was just left to sit there empty, like a shell. Exactly the way we live our lives if we think that God has created us for anything other than a specific purpose that he has for us. When we're living our lives just because we want to do what we want to do, we're like that nuclear power plant just sitting there. We've got empty rooms. We've got all kinds of structures and power and facilities in place, and we're just rusting away, 
waiting for the end so that someone can come and finally demolish us and put us six feet under the ground. That's not what God created us for, to sit idly or to sit accomplishing only what we, just to be a building. We don't exist to exist. We exist because a creator made us for a purpose. And in that purpose, we realize what we're all about. The fact that we're created by God means we have a purpose, that he knows us because he created us, that he protects us because he created us, and he cares about our purpose, and he cares about us. That's our soul. He cares about our soul, and that therefore we can entrust everything that would keep us from accomplishing it to him. So this is what I want to encourage, that our advocacy for the sanctity of life, begin being expressed in our commitment to fulfilling the purpose of our life, inherent to us as those who are known and preserved and created by God. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.